Lucky number negative seven. This is the seventh episode from the Rondo Podcast Faults with Blake Eastman. Blake is uh, the founder of the Nonverbal Group, uh, a school in New York City that teaches about nonverbal communication. I've taken some of his classes. They're awesome. He also teaches, he's also a former professional poker player and teaches about how to play poker and incorporates a lot of this uh, nonverbal training in poker. Obviously, there's a lot of that in the game of poker, tells and whatnot. Um, but we have a great conversation about uh, what it means to read people, uh, de- demystifying some of like the mystical beliefs around uh, what it means to like get a good read on someone. Like I talk a lot about intuition and I trust it as a mechanism, but I don't really understand how it works. So it was, it was great speaking with someone who's very grounded in, in scientific um, uh, research. He actually runs his own studies on, on nonverbal communication. And it was great speaking with him about this. Uh, Blake's awesome. You should definitely check out his school in New York, the nonverbalgroup.com, if you want to take one of his classes on, on reading people or expressing better, stronger body language for whatever. Actually, he hates the term body language. Better, stronger, nonverbal communication. Um, this is episode negative seven, Blake Eastman, nonverbal communication. You're listening to the Rwando Podcast, Perpetual Orgasm, Infinite Play. Please subscribe on iTunes and enjoy the show. Yeah, so could you start off by speaking about how you got into studying body language? Um, it's kind of, it, it really, the original idea was this website called the first date files. And I had this idea for creating uh, research driven advice for men. So basically what I was going to do was I recorded a bunch of first dates and I wanted to see, you know, specific themes that you know made them good or made them bad or what made uh, daters more effective at a date and all those different dynamics. And basically I started, when I first did it, I started to see that the the underlying theme was the ability to identify nonverbal behavior. So it kind of spun out of that. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I noticed, um, in your intro class, which I took, I guess it's like two years ago. Um, you really focus on specific things like blink rate and, uh, other quantifiable, um, like actions. Is that, is that where the focus was originally? Um, I think in, in off, I think it's become, it started off more holistic then it got very specific and now it's kind of a blend. Uh-huh. So it's a blend of looking at specific metrics and also just other ways of improving people's communication, which sometimes doesn't require awareness of these very specific and subtle things. Like there's a difference between research and coaching. Mm-hmm. So coaching requires less of a, uh, what's the word coaching requires less of a finite approach where, uh, research definitely requires you to uh, break things down into actual observable and measurable, um, components. So it's kind of, we're, we're on the nexus of both of those. We kind of oscillate between the two. Yeah. Cause that's one of those things that I've thought about with body language a lot, because, um, a lot of books will, will speak about these specific, uh, tells or reads and whatnot, Whereas I've met a lot of people, I'm sure you have have two who are really good at reading people, like can tell when people are lying or you can, you can, uh, really like get a good sense of people, but they have no idea what they're picking up. Like the whole thin slicing thing. Yeah. I mean, definitely there's some people with a, a natural aptitude for identifying like shifts in people's patterns and there's just certain people are more prone to that. Um, it's interesting cause there's a lot of people who think they're good at it and they're not. So like a lot of people will be like, oh, I'm really good at reading behavior. 
it's just the bias that they've created in themselves yeah. while there's other people that are really good at it and uh it really depends uh on the person usually people that are good at it usually have some sort of childhood trauma or something that happened in their life that would make them pay attention to nonverbal behavior. So for example, like maybe a, a parent being abusive or living in a bad neighborhood or something, there has to be some sort of essential reason on why people would want to pay attention to behavior at abnormally high levels. Gotcha. Um, how did you come across with that uh, conclusion? Sorry. It just broke up. How did you come across um, that understanding that people? That's, I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of documented. It's, it's poked at in the literature uh-huh. and it's also just in my coaching, right? So like I'll talk to somebody who I think has a high aptitude and I'll, I'll ask them about their early childhood and there's always something, whether it's anxiety, gotcha. there's kind of a, a, a trend that definitely comes up for people. Um, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting actually. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, because I remember, um, I, I think I, I might be remembering this incorrectly because it's been a while, but you said something about how you're really quiet as a kid and that's what put, like, what that's what had you to focus so much on nonverbals. Yeah, I wasn't quiet. I was anxious as a kid. Gotcha. Okay. So, yeah, I was pretty anxious as a child. And uh, one of my ways to calm down that anxiety was to pay attention to everything around me. Gotcha. And that kind of got, you know, hypersensitive. And then my life work really revolved around that. So, it makes you even more and more and more. Um, it, it's an, a consistently increasing skill set, but you know, there. Yeah, I've been doing that my whole life, essentially. Gotcha. And was that? Did that come from like this belief that if you could read people well enough, you can control situations? Yeah, pretty much. I would say that's a consistent threshold, or, or that's a consistent theme. That like having a knowledge of where someone is, or in their emotional state, or if they're listening or not listening, or, or whatever it may be, provides me with like kind of a power and a sense of control in that immediate uh, dynamic. Yeah. yeah. But you did just mention that you don't necessarily have to um, be conscious of these finite things. Whereas it seems like what you teach are like reading finite things. Um, and I've become so interested in this because I know you know a little bit about my background. I've met so many people in like mystical, uh, I guess, modalities or whatnot who claim uh-huh. to read people really well. And they'll say like really vague things like, oh, I felt into that person's energy or whatnot. Um, is that things like mirror neurons? Are they basically just very empathetic, those who are actually good at it? I mean, that's, that's a really good question. So like... Um... I've met those individuals as well and it's split. So there's some people that, you know, maybe they think they're seeing something that they're not. I I don't, I once, I once had a woman in the office that um, was convinced that she saw an aura around me Uh and she was like, after speaking, she's like, you know, you have a, you have an incredible aura that I've never seen before. And it's amazing. And she started going into all this stuff. And, uh, and I'm looking at her like, I really think she thinks she sees an aura around me. Like whether, whether it actually exists in reality or not, she believes to see that. And all of her reads were really a byproduct of my three hour presentation. And then she kind of summed it up at the end via her concept of an, an aura, which, and I don't know. I mean, I, I, I kind of always oscillate between mixed beliefs about, you know, the presence of energy and stuff like that. I really just feel that it's, it's more of a manifestation of behavior. Mm-hmm. So I could see some people have described someone having this specific energy to them. And, and to me, it's not specific energy. It's actual 
behavioral metrics or movement that creates the perception of an energy, right? So it's actually can be quantified and qualified. Um, and it's not so much that they have, like, I don't believe there's no one that I've ever met in my entire life that like has energy that supersedes an explanation from behavior. Like until someone comes into my office and starts floating in the air, then I'll be like, (laughs) all right, dude, like you, you've won, but there's just, there are certain ways or certain patterns of communication. There's certain communication styles that, that have a strong and powerful effect on people. And it's been like that since the, you know, the beginning of time. And I, I don't really believe in, I don't necessarily, yeah, I don't believe in those kind of themes. I do believe in observable trends in behavior that lead or link to, you know, an increase in charisma or an increase in manipulation around a crowd or the ability to kind of lie and have nobody else know that you're lying. I mean, I don't feel that those are energies per se. Mm-hmm. I feel that they're, um, they can be more just they can be more broken down than people think that they can once i start once i start explaining it they're like oh yeah i see that yeah so it it sounds like you don't totally write off people though when they say uh, oh i see this aura or i see this energy it sounds like i mean i translate it into your language i I translate to my own i'm a pretty open-minded person yeah um I do believe that there's some stuff that like we can't comprehend, but I believe that there's so much disinformation out there, right? There's, there's so many people that that aren't really speaking from an area of knowledge, but there are some people out there. I mean, there's some people out there that are, you know, psychics can be hypersensitive to behavior and that's how they, they solidify their reads and their intuition or their thoughts are, are guided by someone's behavior, not necessarily by someone's are they actually seeing the future or not? I mean, this is a whole other discussion, but like technically yeah. in order to see like future tell, you know, um, if in order to see the future, the future would have already had to have happened, right. To see something that, it, so it, there's like a whole, this is a whole other thing, but yeah, basically I met some people that say they see my energy and they have no, can I curse on this yeah, podcast? Totally. They have no fucking clue what they're talking about and they're absolutely nuts. And I've met some other people who have a profound insight into those things and the way they describe it is via energy. So I'm very mixed on the subject. Yeah, you bring up a good point because like when people who I think are actually good at reading people or whatever they're whatever they're claiming to be good at and they explain it in a mystical way, like I try to translate as best I can because like the concept of mirror neurons is a pretty recent um, understanding in science. But people have been saying, oh, I can feel into this person for, for forever. And um, it could be, I mean, like the, the, the word energy, uh, I mean, when people talk about it in a mystical way, they're usually just talking about a feeling they have. And if you're feeling what someone else is feeling, what someone else is feeling, that's just empathy. That's nothing magical. Yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. Like empathy can communicate in a ton of different ways. And um, some people just have that capacity to you know, communicate a, a massive level of warmth and understanding where other people just don't. And it's, I don't know if they're gifted in a specific way in the sense of like, you know, the gods have given them this gift, but yeah. <laughs> they definitely have a, a unique ability, which shouldn't be discounted or discredited. I'm just saying that I've definitely seen I've seen the specter of man. I mean, like, cause I've, pe- I've had people I've, I, in my classes. I mean, I, uh, I don't really do live classes anymore, but there is a point where there is literally like, I don't know, like 500 people walking through the office every week. And this is New York city. So you just get a really wide range of, of, of practitioners and of coaches and of all these different things. And I, I've definitely seen the gamut. What's the craziest uh, claim people have made to you? 
Oh man. Um, I've, I've had, I, I don't know if one of them stands out. I remember one woman in particular, she took the class and she was a, um, some sort of healer. And, and it was a term that I've never heard before. And I, and I've heard of Reiki and all the different methodologies, but it was something I never heard before. And she was, she was describing things that were just so like fifth and sixth level of, of what I perceive to be not, not craziness, but just out there. And she was talking about like how everybody's interconnected and it's themes and things that I've heard about before, but the way she was telling it and she had like this kind of glance in her eye where I'm like, this person is probably, you know, yeah, she's a little bit out there. I mean, and, and I believe there's a lot of the stuff. There's a lot of stuff that works and a lot of stuff useful. Somebody that works with me, Eddie, who's been my right hand forever. Like, I mean, he's, he's actually, I don't know if he's listening to me or not, but he's, he can hear this. And he's pretty crazy in himself, right? Like he'll have all these, you know, crazy things. But like every once in a while, what he says is exactly right and what you need. So like I always believe that there's a balance, you know what I mean? Are you talking about like when it comes to tech stuff or like about the universe? I'm talking about like, yeah, the universe or communication or just some insight into something that may not be with something that I'm personally aligned with, but the advice is still good. Right. Like that's, that's kind of the the analogy, right? Somebody can be, let's say there's someone who's an energy reader and I don't know, they, they, they practice energy reading of the fifth circle from a tribe in Mars. Like it's the most craziest thing in the world. And then they see someone on the street and they say to them, (laughs) you know, sir, you know, your energy is, is very, is very burdensome right now. And you seem to be really struggling with a lot. And I really feel that if you do this, this, and this from my tribe, it'll have a big impact on your life. And they tell them to do something like, I don't know, uh, you know, record their daily intentions or have say this every morning or whatever it is. I mean, some of that stuff may fall in line with actual like modern day, you know, cognitive neuroscience or modern day positive psychology or something like that. And while the vessel might be different, it still might be helpful. So that's kind of why I've always kept an open mind with this stuff is that like, you know, some of the craziest stuff, it it works for people and it doesn't need to be such so validated and she might be right or he might be right that energy might be exactly what that looks like it's emitting you know yeah. um, it's tough so, with confirmation bias because yeah it you know, is. eddie might have superpowers but anybody can find anything about anything right like so that's where it's hard to kind of uh it's hard to kind of draw the line and where we differ is it's not esoteric it's not an energy it's listen, the reason why you're coming across stressed and awkward is because your gaze direction shifts every three seconds, your blink rate's elevated, you have slight facial grimaces in the lower half of your face, your uh, upper half of your face is a little bit decreased in terms of emotionality. And then people watch themselves on video and they're like, oh shit, yeah, I get it. Yeah, speaking of that, and actually speaking of Eddie, because um, he edited one of he edited the video for one of my events, and he mentioned about how he was going to get to know me really well because he was watching me speak for forty minutes. Yeah, editing yeah, clip. definitely. And I, I became like really conscious of that afterwards because um, I've been editing these podcasts and listening to myself speak, and I'm like, wow, I didn't realize I stutter so much. I can't believe how much I say you know and um, that's ridiculous. Oh yeah. Um, and my question is because so when when someone's like say stuttering or um, saying um a lot, there's like an un, um, an assumption that they're doing that because uh, maybe they're nervous or they're not thinking or whatever whatever negative traits there are, which is why people try to not say um. um my question is if someone becomes conscious of that and actually gets themselves to stop saying um or whatever this like 
undesirable trait is, would that actually change whatever the, the source was? Like, would that change the anxiety or would that just be a cover? So you mean if you try to fix someone, that if, if someone's saying, um, and they're saying, um, 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 as a manifestation of anxiety, if you were to reduce the saying, um, would it reduce the anxiety? Is that your question? Yeah. Is it covariant? No, it's the worst way to attack it. Gotcha. The worst way to attack little communication things like, um, like, um, isn't the, um, is the manifestation of some like other issue, right? People don't say, um, because they don't like the, for example, if somebody were to say, um, every single time they had a conversation more than like, I don't know, 30% of the times as their verbal fillers or whatever. And they did that with best friends and they did that with their parents. They did that with everyone around them. Then that's a behavioral thing. It's a behavioral pattern or quirk. However, however, if you don't say, um, that much, then all of a sudden you get on a stage and you're like, um, well, um, um, I'm not really sure. Um, it's a manifestation of your anxiety and, and the, the, the way to fix that or not fix it, but improve it or reduce it is to essentially go after the core elements behind the anxiety as opposed to the saying, um, like, that's why I hate when people like count ums in a presentation. Yeah, Like, like the reality is this, like if you're truly present and you're giving a good presentation, like the average person won't be able to even understand ums. Like I, i I make upwards of 300 speech errors in a three hour conversation in a three hour uh, presentation. So I make tons of speech mistakes and errors and inconsistencies. Did you count them when you watch the video? Yeah, I had someone count them. <laughs> and, um, I, when you ask the audience, how many, how many of you heard or how many mistakes that I make? They say like, you know, you know what, what mistakes like two to five or something like that, because they just don't, they don't realize it. And most people, when they make these mistakes, they're anxious. So they bring mistake they bring attention to the mistake. So they're like, uh, um, um, everyone's going to notice that. But if yeah. you say um once in a while, people aren't really going to pick it up. Yeah, I was wondering because I, I heard some study or I've heard from somebody, maybe a psych student when I was in college, that if you force a smile, it releases dopamine in your brain. You actually can become happy, even though it's like a reverse of the causation, like you're forcing mechanical action, but you actually become happy instead of the other way around. Yeah, yeah that's like the old classic, like put a pencil in your mouth study. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Listen, like, <laughs> this is where these things become infinitely complex, right? So it's like, all right, let's take a, let's take a behavioral mechanism or a manifestation of happiness. Let's reverse engineer it and let's measure specific, you know, uh, increases in hormones and neurotransmitters, right? dopamine, serotonin, whatever, whatever you want to do. And a lot of those tests are like, you know, independent variables studied in the lab. And yeah, they're interesting. The impact that smile has on your communication. See, that's why I hate, I don't hate, uh, it's a strong word, but I don't, I hate the way some people apply academic research, right? So like academic research is very, very rigid. It's, it's procedures and it's not really, it's very difficult to replicate interactions uh, because of IRB and variables Let's take a look at like smiles on. Let's take a bunch of calls. Wait, hold on. Can you, can you hold on a sec? You, you broke yeah. up the last minute. Could you um, repeat what you said about academic procedures? Uh, so studies are very rigid, very controlled, and they follow a set of like operating, you know, uh, refined things the way they want them to. And what tends to happen is like publications or authors or even like bloggers will like find a study like, oh, 
let's let, 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 let's this is perfect this study says that if you smile that you know if you force a smile dopamine will increase and you'll feel happier so let's write in our top three you know things of how to become more effective in a meeting it's one of the things you should do is smile because smiles will create happiness which has mirror neurons effect and it's just taking it completely out of context in the sense that when you're executing that um, behavior or you're executing that smile it's having also an effect you. So if a really anxious person smiles, they don't have this beautiful, natural, amazing smile that you do when you're not anxious. They have this weird, awkward, anxious-ridden smile. And that's the problem with when people try to coach communications with these things is that, yeah, if you're sitting there in the middle of your room yourself smiling, sure, why not? It's not going to hurt anyone. But you shouldn't really necessarily be smiling to feel better or before an event or something like that, because it, it, it impacts your communication and people don't know why you're smiling weird. They don't know oh, that guy's a little <laughs> bit nervous. He doesn't want to say, um, he's just, he, he read an article in INC magazine a couple of weeks ago that if you just smile before an event, it'll help. And they don't know that's why you're weird. They just look at you and go, that guy's weird. Something's wrong with them. Yeah. And it, it's, so a lot of the advice in communications is, is quite frankly, just, it's just bad advice. It's not, it's not ground. It's And it's grounded in science, but so loosely grounded. It's like, you know, two steps away from the actual source. Um, and that's the thing is that, and that's a, the, when the researcher, when the person doing that study, it's not their fault because they're not studying the effects of perception. They're studying the effects of, you know, specific neurotransmitters and how a smile affects those. So what the cool thing is, is that, you know, their study is perfectly fine. I don't mind. I love the academic research. I hate the way it's repurposed, basically. Hmm. Yeah, I'm sure you heard the one about, um, like, if you stand in a Superman position, it raises your testosterone. Amy, Amy Cuddy's work. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm sure you're also familiar with the, with the bitch face, right? Yeah. We call it resting bitch face. Resting faces. I mean, there's more than just the bitch face. Like there's bitch face. There's something called a polarized face, which is somebody with no facial expressions and all of a sudden they light up. Um, there's like, there's sometimes the opposite. So people are just overtly happy. So they're always positive and their, their intentions don't really make sense because they're telling you they're communicating some sort of information that seems to be serious yet. They're smiling while they're doing it. So they're sending this message, but like smiling is a manifestation of how they deal with things that are comfortable in that smile state or some people don't smile at all. I mean, the amount of facial issues or facial diagnostics that there are, are utterly incredible. Yeah, well, with yeah. resting faces, resting bitch faces or whatever, isn't it from like, like if someone has like a permanent frown, even though when they're not, even when they're not happy, isn't that from frowning too much? It could be. I mean, sometimes people that have negative resting faces or negative faces are just negative people. And that's a truly transparent thing. But usually it's left over from some sort of... In my experience working with it, it's some sort of behavioral quirk, some sort of things that people don't even realize. Uh -huh. um, and it's just the way they hold their face. And when you put them under cameras and stuff, they're like, oh, shit, I didn't even notice that. Yeah, I was having this discussion with a friend because um, he was going to introduce me to his girlfriend. And he said, like, don't like, don't be offended. Like, she has a resting bitch face. And I, I couldn't, like, help like, inquiring, like, oh, is she, like, mopey usually? Or, like, did, was it caused by something? Because I remember, like, I was really, like, moody as a teenager. 
And most of my resting photos from that era, like I do have like the lips, the corners of my lips turned down. And then later on, yeah. that, that changed. But I know it was, I, for my case, I know it was because I was frowning all the time and it, my face was stuck that way, literally. Yeah, I mean, that could just be a uh, like a behavioral habit or leftover from the past. We see a lot of those as well, little quirks. Hmm. So, yeah, like, for example, like, into this creepy thing where I'll look at somebody and I'll be like, did you stutter as a child? And they'll look at me and they'll go, how the fuck did you possibly know that? And I'll, I'll say, and I'll smile and I'll be like, well, what I found in a lot of stutterers are people with English as a second language or, or people that would perceive their speech to have some sort of issue with. They tend to reduce the amount of eye contact they make when they're talking and they're really good listeners. So when you talk, they look at you really intently. But when they speak, they tend to avoid your reaction. And it's something that I've seen in a lot of people who have mm. early like language problems. So I always throw that out there. And every once in a while, people are like, how did you know? And it's cool. It's just like a behavioral quirk that's left over from childhood. Uh, it's because they're avoiding judgment? Is that what it is? Pretty much, yeah. Huh. They're avoiding people's negative um, displays while they're trying to think of what they need to do what they need to say. Yes, this is a question from a listener. Um, he sent it to me with a bunch of typos. So I'm going to try to translate it, hopefully properly. Um, he asked, is it possible to learn body language so well that you can predict what someone's going to do while you're speaking with them? Predict what they're going to do yeah. while you're speaking to them? Mm-hmm. Is that what you said? Yeah. Um, I think... First, I hate the word body language. Um, I like try to use nonverbal communication just because okay. body language was a book in like the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of, I, th- I think, yeah, I think you can get so good at not knowing what someone's going to do. You can be hypersensitive to intention. So like being really, really aware of what they might or may or may not do in a given setting. I don't think you can kind of like tell the future if that's uh-huh. what like you're looking for, but it's definitely a high aptitude to determine whether or not like, like someone's gonna like I can like look around the room that I'm sitting in right now and determine like when someone's probably gonna leave hmm. or when somebody's gonna get up or when someone's gonna be offended and things like that. But I don't think it provides you with like some super level power of like viewing the world. I definitely do think that like I fundamentally see the world differently. So I believe that if you were to like and most aware most aware people so let's take somebody who's not really that aware and let's like translate their brain or give them the power to see the way the world that someone that really is aware sees it i think it would be a complete shock to them Hmm. so i'd imagine they'd be like what the hell is going on i'd imagine that comes into play a lot with poker which we didn't talk about yet but um you do apply you know body language reading and and tells and stuff uh, to your poker playing right Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a company called Beyond Tells, which teaches poker players how to read um, the behaviors of poker players at the table. And the reason why it's it's so much better, um, poker is a relatively uh, defined uh, 
uh, it's a defined game, meaning like with people, uh, if you're talking to someone, they look upset. They could be upset for a wide range of reasons. But in poker, it's usually localized to the action at the game. So it's probably gotcha. one of the best places to study behavior. Um, I mean, it could have external sources that's easy to see. So it, it's one of those things where you're, you're your behavior is affected by a specific set of variables, which is really cool for us because we have the ability to kind of see what those variables are and know what the players have at all times. So it's a really cool um, place to study behavior. Gotcha. So to answer the listener's question, it is possible, but not within um, a field where there's unlimited options and unlimited inputs. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's way more, way more probable and a more specific. And it's not probable for. It's not possible for everyone. It's possible in certain contexts and certain situations. Um, but yeah, in terms of future telling, I think it's it's like risk risk assessment. Like some risk assessment tools are really cool. Like it's kind of what I studied in graduate school. Uh, risk assessment of like sexual offenders. You can determine with a pretty high accurate accuracy based on a certain subset of variables that some he's going to commit a crime again does that mean that they're going to commit a crime again no but like you can predict it with a pretty high accuracy so it's kind of like just making assumptions that are much better than chance i think that that's the way to sum it up gotcha yeah and i guess like when you when you pay attention to those things and someone does something it lessens your surprise when you think like oh they're most likely to do such and such right yeah you see this i mean i guess a lot in sports with like monday morning quarterbacking or like i watch UFC a lot and people always say oh I knew she was going to do this or I know this person's going to get knocked out based on this but like it's so <laughs> yeah, easy after the fact yeah. yeah it's like the Ronda fight recently like people were talking so much shit but if they really knew they would have put some money on it because it was getting crazy odds yeah. so like it's it's every hindsight is you know it's an interesting thing to say the least yeah if anything I would have read it the opposite because um, this is like total aside but my family's from the Philippines and like cockfighting is a very common like normal thing interesting Um, and we I mean when I go there when I visit them like my cousins take me and we we bet on chickens and I usually bet pretty well like I've won way more money than I've lost and I always bet on like the chicken that kind of looks like Ronda Rousey like the one who's like angry looking (laughs) but also calm where Whereas the That's ones good that, strategy. Yeah. And the ones that look flustered, like, seem to lose really quickly because they're not aggressive. Um, and that's exactly how Rhonda and Holly looked before their fight. But obviously, had I bet on that yeah. rooster, I would have Yeah, that's an interesting point. Yeah. yeah. Um, so um, with the, the academic stuff and then you're saying it doesn't translate as well to um, like coaching communication, um, I remember you have a, a class or you had a class where you videotape people doing things and then break it down with them in a tape. Um, so does that actually help them if, if they don't necessarily need to know all these micro expressions or whatever um, to communicate effectively? Yeah, I mean, like, that's the reason why is that, like, when you see someone, when you're recording someone's behavior and you're showing them this is the why, this is the reason why you're being perceived this way, it makes it very, very real for them when they're able to see what those actual reasons are. So, like, I work with a lot of corporate executives and CEOs and stuff like that. And, like, I'll make very strong claims. Like, I'll look them dead in the face and be like, you know, you look like an asshole. And I'll say it just like that. And they can't really defend themselves because. Because I have video footage of them looking exactly like an asshole. Hmm. So, like, it's kind of like this 
is this is how the this is what you look like, man. This is not my opinion. This is like look at the bit, and then they see it, and they're like, oh my god, like I never actually realized that A B C D E F G, and then huh. start to become more aware or more hypersensitive to the things that they're doing. Does but anyone disagree? Yeah, it's not like a one approach. It's not. Like, I don't look like an asshole. Like, no. that's just uh, my happy face or whatever. Yes, yes. Every once, in, every once in a while, somebody will say something like, why is this behavior that? And sometimes people are on some sort of uh, autism spectrum in that case, or they have something called an NLD, so nonverbal learning disorder. They're just not able to process those things. So the average person, when they see their behavior, they acknowledge it pretty quickly they're like oh yeah this is i don't look the best but some people just don't see any problem with their behavior Mm -hmm. and usually that's dealing with something something else yeah i was just uh gonna say bring up the autism spectrum because i have a friend who's um autistic and um he will often argue that he i mean that he can't do such and such or he can't read such and such and a part of me doesn't buy it totally like like he'll say like he doesn't notice when something's not aesthetically pleasing such as like a room being in disarray because he just doesn't feel those things like um one do you think that's like always legitimate and two is that something that can be trained out of someone yeah i mean i think <clears throat> i mean there's there's if we're talking talking about like autism like and, and autism spectrum disorder there's a really wide spectrum right so like your uh, autism is is something that is very I mean, it's this the spectrum disorder is fairly new thing in terms of diagnostic criteria. I think it's going to develop a lot more over the next couple of years. But like, let's take somebody who's higher functioning, maybe like an Asperger's syndrome, something like that. Um, people like that. It's very interesting. I've worked with a couple of them, and yeah, it can be taught, but it's not easy, man. It's like our brains, our brains processing a massive amount of information to to make these reasons, make these deductions. Something that for the average person could be trained, but for some people that I've worked with, I've had to like build it from the ground up. And like, think about it. Like, how do you like? How would you create a framework, or uh, how would you convey what a smile means to someone? Right. Like, oh, what did that smile mean? Like, how would you begin to train that? Like, you can break it into like a real and a fake smile or a smile latent with specific emotions. But because there's so many emotions, how do you choose what emotion it's latent with? So if they really have no framework, you'd have to rebuild it from the ground up, which takes a considerable level of work and um, which requires basically to, to, yeah, to kind of create this internal system of, uh, of what certain facial expressions mean and to build on that system. So I do think that, yeah, there's people out there. I've met people out there that I've shown them like somebody really angry and they're like, why are they angry? Or, or basically like they look okay. And I'm like, are you really? And they're like, yeah. And they just completely miss it. Yeah, my, my autistic friend is actually is very high functioning, and and you can't really tell that he's autistic. But he says like he spent years studying what things mean, and he just everything he does that seems natural he constructed um, consciously. 
Um, and he says it's exhausting, which I totally believe. Um, yeah, no, I, it's definitely, it's very exhausting. So it's like the systems that you and I take for granted that are just become sort of more fluid or more natural. They have to dedicate effort to, which is, which is hard, right? Like it's hard to be in a conversation and make sure you say the thing that is, you know, Oh, this is, this is the, the right thing to say at this right moment. Or I don't want to come across as rude or disrespectful. Or, I mean, that's, that's, that's hard. That's not easy. Uh, it's definitely a population that is really, rewarding to, to work with anybody who's, you know, uh, kind of our mission for the nonverbal group is to, you know, help the people help change people's lives who are going through their suffering, but they don't really know that they're suffering. So like the, the kid who's maybe really anxious and, and you know, terrified of a first date, like he may not define his, his life as, as, as suffering. He's not, I think he's suffering, but if he can just get over these obstacles or hurdles, his life can be so much better so much more powerful so much more enriched and that's something that's kind of what we do so like the people that are like uh, knowingly depressed like yeah we want to help them too but it's so interesting to know that so many people live a life where you know they're healthy and normal and average and but they're just so they're just so limited by their beliefs and so limited by their inability to read and navigate social service interactions that it really has a profound impact in their life. So yeah, like somebody like your friend who had to go through a lot of work to get there, it's admirable that he would want to, you know, do that much because most people, I mean, the average person just doesn't really dedicate that much attention to this area. Yeah. So when you work with people like this and um, you actually do go through all the work to rebuild this framework, does it get to a point, and I guess it's different for every case, but does it get to a point where um, they actually can be quote unquote intuitive where they actually can immediately recognize anger without having to think about it or will they always have to process it consciously? Not enough data. <laughs> Not enough data to answer that question. Theoretically, yes. I mean, so what? One of the things we're doing is we're building out the largest archive of human behavior, pretty much ever. So I'll have a, I'll have a, a sample, uh, basically a database of probably like three to five petabytes of footage, where I can pull like what it looks like to have an anxious smile, what it looks like to have a genuine smile, what it looks like to have a smile latent with anxiety, and we can use that database to train people. So that's one of the things that we're uh, that we're working on, and basically, our, our hypothesis is through rapid exposure to specific facial expressions and rapid exposure to specific emotional states, people can, in fact, slowly learn what's good and what's bad. It's like watching somebody shoot a basketball thousands of times, and the good difference between good form and bad form. Like slowly, you start to learn. Okay, I see the difference, and that's kind of what we're trying to create for behavior. Gotcha. Yeah, but that must be so, something so hard to quantify with like, this is how anxious the smile is. Um, that must yeah, be a huge challenge. A, it's going to be a bitch. But once you get it down, it's, I mean, it just requires pretty, pretty, it's, it's just, it's number one, creating a really good structure for the intake of the data. And number two, like creating a way where you know how to measure anxiety because like anxiety like like i don't know like are you anxious right now you might say seven on a scale of one to ten and if i viewed your anxiety i might be like you don't look that anxious you look fine it's just such a such a tricky thing when you're dealing with that so we can we can define it via like you know using like a polygraph or something like that as a measurement of anxiety but reality is just different for different people so yeah. it's, it's such a cool thing because you always hit on something i mean no matter what you quantify you're going to hit on something subjective eventually right and you just have to decide what you feel. 
Yeah, I mean, that's the whole point is that, like, you can't, like, so carefully define everything because it's just not how our brains work right now. Like, Uh I mean, like, and all that facial identification software and stuff like that, I mean, like, it's really cool and I I find it very interesting, but there... To be honest with you, I feel like they're, we're, we're, we're a long way out, in my opinion, like, you know, uh, to identifying, like, to making it usable. Like, the, the facial software right now, like, tells you what emotion you're, like, oh, are you happy? But it's, it's isolated to, like, five or six emotions. Uh-huh. It does it. It just does what's based on the facial action coding system. They basically created that. And there's some uh, Activa is a great company that's doing a lot of work in that area. But I just I still feel like the the uh, humans are vastly better than any machine right now. Yeah, when you think about what we're able to process uh, subconsciously, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Um, I know on your website you wrote that. Uh, I mean, you mentioned uh, Dr. Mirablon's uh, 93% of communications nonverbal. I mean, we've all heard that a million times. And you mentioned your own research and having like a slightly different percentage and how it doesn't matter. But my question with that was like, how does one even quantify a percentage point of a message? Like, how did how have yeah, you? Yeah, that's um, why. That's why it studies bullshit. Yeah. You know how many times I hear that? Like, oh, 93% of communication. Listen, the study that he created, he defined what nonverbal communication is. He operationally defined how his percentages would be. And from an academic perspective, his study would be valid. It would be peer-reviewed because he made the definitions. But how the hell do you understand what percentage of communication is nonverbal? I, don't, I can't come up with a way. Huh. Like, I always think that. Like, if I can't, like, think of an actual way to come up with, like, even one of the cool things is if you break down to this, like, this um, exercise where you say in a, in a finite environment where you could measure, an infinite environment where you could measure anything and observe anything without any restrictions, how would you figure how much communication is nonverbal? Given myself that, those, like, unlimited constraints, I still can't think of a way to do it. Yeah. But we know that a lot of it is. That's there you go, right? Like a lot of, I don't know what percentage it is, but a lot of communication is in is definitely nonverbal. And when I say nonverbal, I'm also talking about fluctuations in tonality, speech, words per minute, you know, resonance and timbre and all these other aspects. Yeah, I guess it's just uh, that people won't listen to someone saying, oh, most of your communication is nonverbal. Like they need <laughs> right, so you want to, and it sounds so good, right? 93%. How, yeah. I mean, you can't get much better. It's kind of like, you know, they'll do like in marketing, like, you know, like uh, how I made a thousand dollars last week is less likely to be open than how I made one thousand three hundred and thirty six dollars and ninety six cents last week. Right. Right. Like yeah. it's kind of the same. Uh, the same concept. Yeah, it must be real if it's so precise. Yeah, it must be real, right? Yeah. Um, have you heard of the book Reading Faces? It's um kind of a hard book to find by um I think Leonard Pollock. Somebody. It's not a, a popular book. But I was curious if you heard of it. Um, <laughs> you're talking about, uh, fa- how facial anatomy leads into, uh, uh, personality. Um, yeah, well, I mean, the thing I read it in college and I just bought it actually for Christmas for my brother, but um, the thing in that book was about quartering the face and how like the different quarters of someone's face corresponds to different parts of their brain. Are you familiar with that? Mm, I've heard of stuff like that. I am not familiar with it now. <laughs> What does it, what does it yeah. say? Like what's well, essential um, thesis? Yeah. I mean, the, the basic idea is that your left side of your face corresponds to your right brain and vice versa. And, um, 
So you can, you can, what they, what they suggest is to take mug shots of people or yourself and then um, split your left face and your right face and then make mirror images. So you have a left, left face. face. And okay. for most people, those two faces look, look pretty different. And by reading that face, you could read like someone's emotional side versus their logical side. And I wanted to, and it's not like a very scientifically written book, which is why I think it wasn't that popular. But I wanted to hear what you thought about that idea. Yeah, I kind of feel like, so first of all, a lot of like exclusive left brain, right brain stuff has been not disproven, but like, they're like, all right, this is definitely more complex than the left side of your brain. Like, like when somebody goes like, Oh, I'm like a really right brain person. Like, yeah, it doesn't really make much sense. Um, and it's kind of like a story or label that people live into. And I'm, I'm always, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I would question the validity of that just based on, uh, it, it's so tricky, right? It's like, there's all these, do you know what like projective assessments of personality are? Do you remember that? Like no. in psychology. So like a, a projective assessment is like the Rorschach test or the TAT, thematic apperception test. So there's, this is tests where they basically like show you pictures. So they have a guy and a girl, a guy and a, a woman shaking hands. And they, you say like, what's going on in this situation? And the guy says, well, that's the boss. Um, that's the secretary shaking the boss's hand. And there's no indication there that would suggest that she's a secretary, but the guy projects his latent biases about women. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 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 it's like the scene in the, le- in, in the end of Clockwork Orange. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly like that versus objective measures where it's more like, you know, MMPI or like specific empirical tools. And I feel like I could turn anything into like a projective assessment of, you know, personality or a projective assessment. So I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds cool. Like, oh, if we split the brain into left side and right side and we look at this and we look at that, like it kind of like it makes sense. But you could just be processing emotion in the face. It doesn't have to be uh, localized to one side of the face or not. It, it sounds I'd have to look at what. What he's saying before I really speak against it, mm-hmm. but my initial assumptions are like it sounds like you know hokey pokey fun stuff. Hmm. It was a fun project. I actually took the the in- info and turned it into a photography project. And- oh, that sounds cool. Yeah, yeah and yeah. It, it was really cool. I mean, if, if only for like entertainment value, looking at how people's left faces and right faces wow. differed. Like I did. It's um, so cool. Yeah, guys on on my rugby team, and like almost every guy looked super masculine on the right side of their face, and like looked kind of childish and like feminine on their left face, and I was like, oh, Ooh. this book would say that they're trying to posture is more manly than they are, and like I mean, whether it's true or not, yeah, it's no, it, but it sounds cool. Like it, it's like that's the thing about those those things. It, it can be very. Once you know it, you're like, oh shit, this is freaking cool. Like, yeah, like yeah, oh my god, like it, this links to this, and this is powerful, and you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, actually, another thing from this book, and not to talk about this book forever, but um, they mentioned how most people look at each other's right eye, um, which according to them is your your left brain and whatnot. But um, and I have noticed that I I tend to look at people's right eye when I'm making eye contact, like more habitually. Have you noticed that at all when it comes to eye contact? No, I've noticed people. I I noticed people have some. Like some, there's some old NLP stuff that we'll talk about, like looking into the certain left eye, or right eye is the manifestation of this and that. But I haven't noticed people um, doing that. I've kind of, uh, it's actually uh, not the easiest thing to measure, honestly. Hmm. Yeah. It's not the easiest thing to measure when I'll bring it up. There are you. Just because, like, at certain distances, it's kind of hard to track 
like where the eyes are actually looking. So you need to get like the, you need to get a lot of variables correct in order to do that. But, um, software can do it actually super easy. I, I kind of misspoke there, but like for manual coding, it's kind of annoying. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Hmm. Um, so as far as using, um, as far as using like all the like this kind of awareness around body language uh, for general communication, are there any general tips you give people uh, in like how they can enhance their perception or um, enhance like how they're communicating? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the most useful thing is to record yourself. Like the most useful tip is to record yourself with like a best friend. So see what your behavior looks like if you were talking to a best friend, somebody that you have like unconditional positive regard for and they, you know, that they're not judging you or they're not making any sort of um, harsh conclusions about what you're doing or anything like that. And then kind of see how that behavior compares to what you look like in a, a scenario where maybe you are um, public public speaking or in a, in some sort of higher stress environment. I, I really feel like the average person just doesn't know what they actually look like. Hmm. Is, like the, is the idea when you're in an environment where you feel approved of, that's like your best face? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, the idea is basically um, there's this concept of a lot of people. Usually what we do is we don't add behaviors. We we remove behaviors. So a lot of what I'm doing is subtracting, not adding. So I don't teach people skill sets. I teach them how to remove the things that they perceive to be important. That's not important in their life. Gotcha. So like, it's, what's really interesting is, yeah, like you, like you were just saying, like most of the people's like most power and most, it comes from definitely when they're the most comfortable and then they feel like, you know, they're in a safe environment. You'll tend to see them really, perform or have the best style of communication huh. and that's probably what's behind the imagine the audience being naked thing <laughs> that's a good point actually i never thought about that um yeah it's pretty good insight uh i hate things like that like imagine the audience or i don't like little quick tips i like let's try to get you to you know perform better um but yeah i mean that makes sense like I guess it could and could not make sense in a sense that like for some people, like the concept of being naked or with someone could be the most extreme form of anxiety where other people, it could be the most extreme form of comfort. So I don't know. Cool. cool. Yeah. Well, uh, this has been super informative. Thanks for taking the time to speak. Um, and uh, I've taken your class. Uh, I know you don't do the live class anymore, which is a shame because I took it a few years ago and it was awesome. Um, to find about, out about your work is the best place, the nonverbal group.com. Yeah, Beyond Tells for the um, poker stuff and Nonverbal Group is going through a big renovation this year. We're going to be doing a lot of crazy things. So um, yeah, I'll be posting videos like pretty much every day and um, doing breakdowns of people. We're going to really, really, I've just been focusing on the poker stuff for the past couple of years and I'm switching in um, and probably March to really focus on Nonverbal. So there'll be a lot of stuff there. Okay, awesome. Your poker class is great too, by the way. I took the intro to Oh, thanks. Also. Yeah, Zuli taught it, right? Yeah, yeah, she's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. cool. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to be a part of the virtual audience for future episodes, make sure to follow me at crowdcast.io slash Rwando. See you next time.